Chapter Fifty of Uncle Silas by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifty. Milly's farewell. A few days' time saw me much better. Doctor Jolks was so contemptuously sturdy and positive on the point that I began to have comfortable doubts about the reality of my ghost, and having still a horror indescribable of the illusion, if such it were the room in which it appeared and everything concerning it i would neither speak nor so far as i could think of it so though bartram howe was gloomy as well as beautiful and some of its associations awful and the solitude that reigned there sometimes almost terrible yet early hours bracing exercise and the fine air that predominates that region soon restored my nerves to a healthier tone but it seemed to me that bartram howe was to be to me a veil of tears or rather in my sad pilgrimage that valley of the shadow of death through which poor christian fared alone and in the dark one day milly ran into the parlour pale with wet cheeks and without saying a word threw her arms about my neck and burst into a paroxysm of weeping what is it milly what's the matter dear what is it i cried aghast but returning her close embrace heartily oh maud maud darling he's going to send me away away dear where away and leave me alone in this dreadful solitude where he knows i shall die of fear and grief without you oh no no it must be a mistake i'm going to france maud i'm going away mrs jokes is going to london day after to-morrow and i'm to go where and an old french lady he says from the school will meet me there and bring me the rest of the way oh, 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 oh cried poor milly hugging me closer still with her head buried in my shoulder and swaying me about like a wrestler in her agony i never were away from home afore except that little bit with you over there at elverston and you were with me then maud and i love ye better than bartram better than all and i think i'll die maud if they take me away i was just as wild in my woe as poor milly and it was not until we had wept together for a full hour sometimes standing sometimes walking up and down the room sometimes sitting and getting up in turns to fall on one another's necks that milly plucking her handkerchief from her pocket drew a note from it at the same time which as it fell upon the floor she at once recollected to be one from uncle silas to me it was to this effect i wish to apprise my dear niece and ward of my plans milly proceeds to an admirable french school as a pensionnaire and leaves this on thursday next if after three months trial she finds it in any way objectionable she returns to us if on the contrary she finds it in all respects the charming residence it has been presented to me you on the expiration of that period join her there until the temporary complication of my affairs shall have been so far adjusted as to enable me to receive you once more at bartram hoping for happier days and wishing to assure you that three months is the extreme limit of your separation from my poor milly i have written this feeling alas unequal to seeing you at present bartram tuesday p s i can have no objection to your apprising monica knollys of these arrangements 
You will understand, of course, not a copy of this letter, but its substance. Over this document, scanning it as lawyers do a new act of Parliament, we took comfort. After all, it was limited, a separation not to exceed three months, possibly much shorter. On the whole, too, I pleased myself with thinking Uncle Silas's note, though peremptory, was kind. Our paroxysm subsided into sadness. A close correspondence was arranged. Something of the bustle and excitement of change supervened. If it turned out to be, in truth, a charming residence, how very delightful our meeting in France with the interest of foreign scenery, ways, and faces would be. So Thursday arrived, a new gush of sorrow, a new brightening up, and amid regrets and anticipations we parted at the gate at the farther end of the windmill wood. Then, of course, were more good-byes, more embraces, and tearful smiles. Good Mrs. Jolks, who met us there, was in a huge fuss. I believe it was her first visit to the metropolis, and she was in proportion heated and important, and terrified about the train, so we had not many last words. I watched poor Milly, whose head was stretched from the window, her hand waving many adieus, until the curve of the road and the clump of old ash-trees thick with ivy hid Milly, carriage and all, from view. My eyes filled again with tears. I turned towards Bartram. At my side stood honest Mary Quince. "'Don't take on so, miss. Twon't be no time passing. Three months is nothing at all,' she said, smiling kindly. I smiled through my tears and kissed the good creature, and so, side by side, we re-entered the gate. The lithe young man in fustian, whom I had seen talking with beauty on the morning of our first encounter with that youthful Amazon, was awaiting our re-entrance with the key in his hand. He stood half behind the open wicket. One lean brown cheek, one shy eye, and his sharp upturned nose, I saw as we passed. He was treating me to a stealthy scrutiny, and seemed to shun my glance, for he shut the door quickly, and busied himself locking it, and then began stubbing up some thistles which grew close by, with the toe of his thick shoe, his back to us all the time. It struck me that I recognised his features, and I asked Mary Quince, "'Have you seen that young man before, Quince?' "'He brings up game for your uncle sometimes, miss, and lends a hand in the garden, I believe.' "'Do you know his name, Mary?' They call him Tom. I don't know what more, miss. Tom, I called. Please, Tom, come here for a moment. Tom turned about and approached slowly. He was more civil than the Bartram people usually were, for he plucked off his shapeless cap of rabbit skin with a clownish respect. Tom, what is your other name? Tom what, my good man? I asked. Tom Bryce, ma'am. "'Haven't I seen you before, Tom Bryce?' I pursued, for my curiosity was excited, and with it much graver feelings, for there certainly was a resemblance in Tom's features to those of a postillion who had looked so hard at me as I passed the carriage in the warren at Knoll on the evening of the outrage which had scared that quiet place. "'Happen you may have, ma'am,' he answered quite coolly, looking down the buttons of his gaiters. "'Are you a good whip? Do you drive well?' "'I'll drive a plough with most lads hereabout,' answered Tom. "'Have you ever been to Knoll, Tom?' 
Tom gaped very innocently. Anan, he said. Here, Tom, is half a crown. He took it readily enough. That be very good, said Tom, with a nod, having glanced sharply at the coin. I can't say whether he applied that term to the coin, or to his luck, or to my generous self. Now, Tom, you'll tell me, have you ever been to Knoll? Might have been, ma'am, but I don't mind no such place, no. As Tom spoke this with great deliberation, like a man who loves truth, putting a strain upon his memory for its sake, he spun the silver coin two or three times into the air and caught it, staring at it the while, with all his might. Now, Tom, recollect yourself and tell me the truth, and I'll be a friend to you. Did you ride postillion to a carriage having a lady in it, and, I think, several gentlemen, which came to the grounds of Knoll when the party had their luncheon on the grass, and there was a, a quarrel with the gamekeepers? Try, Tom, to recollect. You shall, upon my honour, have no trouble about it, and I'll try to serve you. Tom was silent, while with a vacant gape he watched the spin of his half-crown twice, and then catching it, with a smack in his hand, which he thrust into his pocket, he said, still looking in the same direction, "'I never rid postillion in my days, ma'am. I know now to sit your place, though happen I might have been there. No, you can't. I was near out of Derbyshire, but thrice to Warwick, fair with horses be rail, and twice to York. You're certain, Tom? Certain sure, ma'am. And Tom made another loutish salute, and cut the conference short by turning off the path and beginning to hollow after some trespassing cattle. I had not felt anything like so nearly sure in this essay at identification as I had in that of Dudley even of dudley's identity with the church scarsdale man i had daily grown less confident and indeed had it been proposed to bring it to the test of a wager i do not think i should in the language of sporting gentlemen have cared to back my original opinion there was however a sufficient uncertainty to make me uncomfortable and there was another uncertainty to enhance the unpleasant sense of ambiguity on our way back we passed the bleaching trunks and limbs of several ranks of barkless oaks lying side by side some squared by the hatchet perhaps sold for there were large letters and roman numerals traced upon them in red chalk i sighed as i passed them by not because it was wrongfully done for i really rather leaned to the belief that uncle silas was well advised in point of law but alas here lay low the grand old family decorations of bartram howe not to be replaced for centuries to come under whose spreading boughs the ruffins of three hundred years ago had hawked and hunted on the trunk of one of these i sat down to rest mary quince meanwhile pattering about in unmeaning explorations while thus listlessly seated the girl meg hawkes walked by carrying a basket Hish! she said quickly as she passed, without altering a pace or raising her eyes. "'Don't you speak, nor look. Feather spies us. I'll tell you next turn.' "'Next turn? When was that?' Well, she might be returning, and as she could not then say more than she had said, in merely passing without a pause, I concluded to wait for a short time and see what would come of it. After a short time I looked about me a little and saw Dickon Hawkes, Pegtop, 
as Milly used to call him, with an axe in his hand prowling luridly among the timber. Observing that I saw him, he touched his hat sulkily, and by and by passed me, muttering to himself. He plainly could not understand what business I could have in that particular part of Windmill Wood, and let me see it in his countenance. His daughter did pass me again, but this time he was near, and she was silent. Her next transit occurred as he was questioning Mary Quince at some little distance, and as she passed precisely in the same way, she said, "'Don't you be alone with Master Dudley, nowhere for the world's worth.' The injunction was so startling that I was on the point of questioning the girl, but I recollected myself and waited in the hope that in her future transits she might be more explicit. But one word more she did not utter, and the jealous eye of old Pegtop was so constantly upon us that I refrained. There was vagueness and suggestion enough in the oracle to supply work for many an hour of anxious conjecture, and many a horrible vigil by night. Was I never to know peace at Bartram Howe? Ten days of poor Milly's absence and of my solitude had already passed, when my uncle sent for me to his room. When old Wyatt stood at the door, mumbling and snarling her message, my heart died within me. It was late, just that hour when dejected people feel their anxieties most, when the cold grey of twilight has deepened to its darkest shade, and before the cheerful candles are lighted, and the safe quiet of the night sets in. When I entered my uncle's sitting-room, though his window-shutters were open and the wan streaks of sunset visible through them, like narrow lakes in the chasms of the dark western clouds, a pair of candles were burning. One stood upon the table by his desk, the other on the chimney-piece, before which his tall, thin figure stooped. His hand leaned on the mantelpiece, and the light from the candle just above his bowed head touched his silvery hair. He was looking, as it seemed, into the subsiding embers of the fire, and was a very statue of forsaken dejection and decay. "'Uncle,' I ventured to say, having stood for some time unperceived near his table. "'Ah, yes, Maud, my dear child, my dear child.' He turned, and with the candle in his hand, smiling his silvery smile of suffering on me, he walked more feebly and stiffly, I thought, than I had ever seen him move before. Sit down, Maud, pray sit there. I took the chair he indicated. In my misery and my solitude, Maud, I have invoked you like a spirit and you appear. With his two hands leaning on the table, he looked across at me in a stooping attitude. He had not seated himself. I continued silent until it should be his pleasure to question or address me. At last he said, raising himself and looking upward with a wild adoration, his fingertips elevated and glimmering in the faint mixed light, No, I thank my creator, I am not quite forsaken. Another silence, during which he looked steadfastly at me and muttered as if thinking aloud, my guardian angel, my guardian angel, Maud, you have a heart. He addressed me suddenly. Listen for a few moments to the appeal of an old and broken-hearted man, your guardian, your uncle, your suppliant. 
I had resolved never to speak to you more on this subject, but I was wrong. It was pride that inspired me, mere pride. I felt myself growing pale and flushed by turns during the pause that followed. I'm very miserable, very desperate. What remains for me? What remains? Fortune has done her worst, thrown in the dust, her wheels rolled over me, and the servile world, who follow her chariot like a mob, stamp upon the mangled wretch. All this has passed over me and left me scarred and bloodless in the solitude. It was not my fault, Maud. I say it was no fault of mine. I have no remorse, though more regrets than I can count, and all scored with fire. As people passed by Bartram and looked upon its neglected grounds and smokeless chimneys, they thought my plight, I dare say, about the worst a proud man could be reduced to. I could not imagine one half its misery. But this old hectic, this old epileptic, this old spectre of wrongs, calamities, and follies had still one hope. My manly, though untutored son, the last male scion of the Ruffins. Maud, have I lost him? His fate, my fate, I may say Milly's fate. We all await your sentence. He loves you, as none but the very young can love and that once only in a life. He loves you desperately, a most affectionate nature, a ruffin, the best blood in England, the last man of the race, and I, if I lose him, I lose all, and you will see me in my coffin ward before many months. I stand before you in the attitude of a suppliant. Shall I kneel? His eyes were fixed on me with the light of despair, his knotted hands clasped, his whole figure bowed toward me. I was inexpressibly shocked and pained. "'Oh, uncle, uncle!' I cried, and from very excitement I burst into tears. I saw that his eyes were fixed on me with a dismal scrutiny. I think he divined the nature of my agitation, but he determined, notwithstanding, to press me while my helpless agitation continued. You see my suspense, you see my miserable and frightful suspense. You are kind, Maud, you love your father's memory, you pity your father's brother. You would not say so and place a pistol at his head. Oh, I must, I must, I must say no. Oh, spare me, uncle, for heaven's sake. Don't question me, don't press me. I could not, I could not do what you ask. I yield, Maud, I yield, my dear. I will not press you. You shall have time, your own time, to think. I will accept no answer now. No, none, Maud. He said this, raising his thin hand to silence me. There, Maud, enough. I have spoken, as I always do to you, frankly, perhaps too frankly, but agony and despair will speak out and plead, even with the most obdurate and cruel. With these words, Uncle Silas entered his bedchamber and shut the door, not violently, but with a resolute hand, and I thought I heard a cry. 
I hastened to my own room. I threw myself on my knees and thanked heaven for the firmness vouchsafed me. I could not believe it to have been my own. I was more miserable in consequence of this renewed suit on behalf of my odious cousin than I can describe. My uncle had taken such a line of importunity that it became a sort of agony to resist. I thought of the possibility of my hearing of his having made away with himself, and was every morning relieved when I heard that he was still as usual. I have often wondered since at my own firmness. In that dreadful interview with my uncle, I had felt in the whirl and horror of my mind, on the very point of submitting, just as nervous people are said to throw themselves over precipices through sheer dread of falling. End of chapter 50